Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would meet us in your word now. Lord, we ask that you would compel us through the scriptures by the power of your spirit for Christ's sake. Compel us, Lord, to hold fast to the gospel, to consider how we might stir one another up to love and good deeds. Lord, help us to obey everything that Jesus commanded and everything that is given to us in the book of Hebrews. And Father, cause all of this to flow from our worship of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would do this and much else beyond what I can ask or think for your glory in the name of Christ. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to the book of Hebrews. We'll be continuing in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Lord willing, we'll do Hebrews 1, 5 through 14, so the rest of, of Hebrews 1 this morning. And as you turn there, I, I just want to put into your minds the words of Hebrews 10, 24, which I just mentioned in my prayer, where the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how we may stir one another up to love and good deeds. And in a way, this is what the author has done. The author of Hebrews, we don't know who he is, which is is all the more remarkable because this is such an accomplishment, this book. The author of Hebrews has considered, he's thought carefully and deeply about how he can stir the, the Christians to whom he writes up to love and good deeds. These folks, these Christians that he's addressing, seem to have been, at least to some degree, persecuted for their faith. In Hebrews 10, 32 through 35, he speaks of how um, after they became believers, they endured a hard struggle, struggle, sometimes being public, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. And in Hebrews 12:4, he mentions how they've not yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood. So they're being opposed, but they haven't yet apparently shed their blood for the faith. And then in Hebrews 13, verse 3, he says, remember those who are in prison. So he's probably talking about some other Christians who have been put into prison for the faith. And then lastly, along these lines, Hebrews 13, 13, he speaks of how Jesus suffered outside the gate. And so we should go outside the camp to him bearing his reproach. And so uh, there's going to be public scorn heaped on those who identify with the Lord Jesus. It may be that what prompted all of this was the way that in the, in the Roman world at this time, around this time, uh, the emperor expelled all Jews from Rome. And, and the reason he expelled the Jews from Rome was because there were the, these disputes over um, a slave named Crestus, and, and many people identify that as the Lord Jesus. So the Jews and the Christians are disputing with one another, and then the Jews are expelled from Rome. But Judaism was a protected religion. You could be a Jew and not be persecuted in the Roman world. Christianity, however, did not enjoy that protected status, and so it may be that what, what prompted these Christians to be persecuted was the fact that they were Christians, and that was an unprotected situation. So this letter, the letter of, of Hebrews, is, I think, 
trying to keep the Christians from being tempted to go back to Judaism. Because if they, if they go back to Judaism, if they reunite with the Jews and forsake Jesus, well, the persecution goes away because they're a protected status. And, and there, may have been, there may have been other things going on, but I want to suggest to you that this, the argument that this letter makes has relevance for us today. It, it, it has relevance for us today because in the same way that people could be persecuted for bearing the name of Christ in the author's day, that is also the case today. And, and people can be tempted to, to understand how they can get rid of that reproach by letting go of the name of Jesus, maybe by identifying with some other group, maybe by taking on a religious identity that has better cultural standing. I don't know. Whatever the case, the argument in this letter is one that will help us to hold fast to the gospel and help us to identify with Jesus. So here's, here's what the author does as he tries to stir his audience up to love and good deeds. Here in chapter 1, he exalts Jesus and he shows how Jesus brings the new covenant in fulfillment of the old. So think about the way that his audience is tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to go back to the old covenant. And this author is saying, Jesus is the exalted one who brings about the fulfillment of the old covenant in the new covenant. I think this, this can speak to several impulses at work in our culture. There are some theonomists people who are advocating uh, that we embrace the law of Moses, and really what they're trying to do is go back to the old covenant in some ways. And, and then there are, there are other ways that people want to try to solve the, the cultural problem that doesn't look like remaining fast to the Lord Jesus. So this is, this is what we're after. We're after holding fast to the Lord Jesus by seeing how he's exalted and seeing how he brings about the fulfillment of the old covenant in the new covenant. Um, the author of Hebrews has been powerfully effective. He, he, he thought about how to stir others up to love and good deeds, and he produced what he refers to at the end of the letter in Hebrews 13, 22, as a word of exhortation. And that phrase, word of exhortation, is, is used elsewhere in the New Testament in Acts 13, 15, to refer to the sermon that Paul preaches in the synagogue. So what this guy did, the author of Hebrews, was he, he crafted a synagogue sermon that is intended to stir believers up to love and good deeds. And his sermon was so good that it landed in the Bible. That, that's how effective this author is in, in, in what he set out to do. So what I want to do this morning is I want to think with you about the flow of thought here in Hebrews 1. We're going we're to take three trips through Hebrews Chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. The first trip through, we're going to look at the flow of thought and, and, and how the statements that the author makes logically accomplish his purpose. The second trip through, we're going to look at the literary structure, the way that he has, he has crafted and, and in a beautiful way created symmetry in what he says. And then the third trip through, we're going to, we're going to Go back through these statements and think about the way the author shows us how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So let's start with the flow of thought. And for this, we have to reach back into Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, which we looked at two weeks ago. And what the author argues in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is something like this. The word made flesh, 
God incarnate in Christ. The Word made flesh has revealed the new covenant which fulfills and replaces the old covenant which God revealed when he sent angels to prophets. So you can just look at Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And he doesn't say here, he did this by angels, but he does, say, he does start talking about angels in verse 4. And then he is going to say in, in chapter 2, verse 2, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. So he, one of the reasons he's talking about the angels is because it was through the angels that God revealed the old covenant. And, and so his point in 1, 1 through 4 is that in the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of the old covenant has been revealed by God. And so this is part of the argument, so don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the old covenant. And then he, as he moves into chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, let me, let me summarize his, his case here, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. I think his argument goes like this. The angels worship the only begotten, firstborn, enthroned, anointed, imperishable, creator son, and the angels serve those who will inherit the salvation that Christ accomplished. So again, this is part of the argument. Don't be tempted to return to Judaism, even though it would take away the, the persecution that you're facing. And the reason you shouldn't return to, to, to Judaism is because of who Jesus is. So he's exalting the Lord Jesus, and he's showing how Jesus has brought about the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So let's look at verse 5 together, where the author says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And clearly his point is that God, God never said anything like what he's about to say, what he's about to quote from the Old Testament, to any angel. To which of the angels did God ever say, and then he quotes Psalm 2-7, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And we'll talk about Old Testament fulfillment in a moment. We talked last week about how this, this I think, can be understood as the eternal generation of the son from the father, where, whereby in eternity past, God the father was always bringing forth God the son, begetting God the son. And then he names him son. Look at verse 4 there, where, where the author speaks of how Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What name? Well, in part, the name is son. You are my son. And then I think there's, there's also a little bit of fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant here. Uh, Genesis 12, I will make your name great. So Jesus has received the, the greatest name, the name that is above every name. And God never said anything like that to any angel. You are my son today, I have begotten you, Psalm 2-7. Or again, continuing in verse 5, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So don't go back to Judaism because of who it is through whom God has revealed the new covenant. The son the begotten Son of God, the eternally begotten Son who relates to God as his Father. Second, verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn. 
And I think that those statements in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If we think of this as the eternal generation of the son, well then the identification of the Lord Jesus as the firstborn takes on this massive connotation that before everything else he was, when there was no time, forever he has been begotten of the Father. When he brings the firstborn into the world. Now, what's he, what's he talking about here? Is he, is he speaking here of the incarnation uh, when, when the Lord Jesus was born of a virgin? I think that could work because on that occasion, as we read in the Gospel of Luke, the angels are celebrating the Lord Jesus. They're crying out hallelujah. And the shepherds behold this glorious worship celebration of the angels. But because of what chapter 2 Verse 5 says, when it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So the reference to the angels there, and then the reference to the world to come, and, and the, 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 the word world there in 2.5 is the same word that, that we have here in 1.6 when he brings the firstborn into the world. I think he's talking about the world to come. So I think this quotation of Psalm 97.7 is referring to, to, to the scene when Christ is enthroned over the new world. And, and what the scriptures say God will proclaim at that time is, let all God's angels worship him. So, so again, the author's point is, you should not go back to Judaism, even though the scriptures of the Old Testament were revealed uh, by angels through prophets, because Christ the Son, whom the angels worship, is the one that, through whom God has now spoken. And then continuing in verse 7, he says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So quoting Psalm 104, verse 4 here, the author speaks of how wind and flame serve the Lord. The Lord is so powerful and awesome that he can take these these angels and, and send them like the wind or cause them to appear. I think perhaps he has in mind what we read there in Acts when, uh, when the angel appeared to Moses in the flame at the burning bush. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But, verse 8, of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the angels are servants, and the Son is enthroned. And then continuing to speak of, of how exalted and how worthy the Son is, he says, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And this is a statement that says that this king is not one who is served because he rules with an iron hand. This is not a king who has established dominion by force or by, by compulsion. This is a king who has established dominion by the power of his righteousness, by his character, which is such that his uprightness compels people to worship him. That's why we worship Jesus, isn't it? It's not because somebody's forcing us to do it. It's because he's worthy. We see him and we know he is the upright one. And not only is he the upright one, he is the forgiving one. He is the one who has secured our salvation. So he warrants 
our obedience. He has earned our respect from us. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then moving in the same direction here in verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the author of Hebrews is quoting these Old Testament texts to say, look at how magnificent Jesus is. He is the one who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And and because of that absolute righteousness, God anointed him. So, So Christ has earned his kingship. He has earned the obedience of his followers. And when God anointed him, this anointing was with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. It's speaking to the way that obedience results in joy and that God's favor results in joy. And nobody in the world, nobody in existence, nobody ever has been happier than the Lord Jesus. Nobody has ever received more blessing from God the Father than God the Eternal Son. So the author is saying to his audience, you should not go back to to Judaism because the new covenant has been revealed through the eternally begotten Son of the Father, whom the angels worship, so verses 5 and 6 there, and those angels, verse 7, are but servants and ministers, whereas the Son is enthroned, he's upright, he's anointed, verses 8 and 9. And he's the creator, verse 10. And the author recounts, and here he's quoting Psalm 102, the passage that was read earlier in the service. You, Lord, addressing the Lord Jesus here as Lord. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. And and so we've read in Genesis 1 of how God the Father spoke the world into being. And we've seen how in Psalm 33, by your word, O Lord, were the heavens made. We've seen how in in John 1, through him all things were made. And we've seen here in Hebrews 1, at the end of verse 2, through whom also he created the world. And now the author is saying, yes, the Lord Jesus laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of his hands. These are clearly figurative waves of speaking. There, there is not, if you, if you dig into the earth, you will not found a fi- find a foundation. If you, if you go up into a spaceship and circle the globe, you won't found, find a literal foundation, but we get the point. The point is, it's the Lord Jesus who has established this, this, pr- this building project that is the cosmos. And though the invisible and, and immaterial God, who is spirit, does not have literal hands, at least not until Christ becomes incarnate as the Word made flesh, yet still there's an intricate skill, a a, a delicate precision that is accomplished, and and the author speaks of this, the psalmist spoke of it, as as the work of God's hands. And we, we know similar language from Psalm 8, the work of his fingers. And then in verse 11, again quoting Psalm 102, the author speaks of how the creation will perish. I think implicit in these concepts is the fact that that the cosmos as we know it was made at a point in time, and at a point in time, it will come to an end. It will perish. There is a 
current heavens and earth, and there's going to be a new heavens and earth. However, we might understand the, 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 the judgment and destruction as perhaps a, a cleansing and purging and re renewal, maybe something along the lines of the flood, the fires of the, in, of the end, because in 2 Peter 3, you know, he speaks of the world that then existed prior to the flood, and then there's this flood-like destruction, and now we have this world, and then there's going to be another purging fire destruction, and then the new heavens and new earth. So verse 11, they will perish, the heavens and the earth. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed into the new heavens and new earth. But you, and here, here the author is definitively speaking of Christ the Son as God. Quoting Psalm 102 and speaking of the Son as one who is above and beyond creation, not, not limited to the outworking of time. You are the same, and your years will have no end. He's really anticipating what he's going to say in Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same. Similar language, similar grammatical construction. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's God. He is immutable. He does not change. He is imperishable. Unlike the creation, he will not wear out. So the author is saying, don't return to Judaism. God. God the the son, God has now spoken through his son, who is the eternally begotten son of the father, who is God himself. And then concluding his argument here in chapter 1, he says, and to which of the angels has he ever said? And then he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, sit at my right hand. God the father never said to any angel ever, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Anticipating the way that Christ is going to be established as king over all the earth. And then the concluding comment in verse 14. Are they not all, the angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So let's think about the author's flow of thought. 1, 1 to 4, he introduces Christ as the one who is the representation of the substance of the Father. That central statement. The one who is both the creator and the cleanser. The one through whom God made the world, through whom God sustains the world. The one who has made purification for sins. And he is the one through whom God has spoken. And he is, in, in verse uh, 5, he is the son of God. Verse 6, the servants and angels worship him. Verse 7, those, are, those angels are servants. Verse 8, the Son is enthroned. Verse 10, the Son is the creator. And, and verse 13, God never spoke this way to any angel. And those angels, finally, verse 14, are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That includes us. And if we were to continue this into chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the, ar the argument is really, it's really coming to a head on verse 3. Where, where the author, having said, you know, look, the Old Covenant stipulations were upheld. And people who transgress the Old Covenant, they experience the curses of the covenant. So, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect, neglect such a great salvation? So, if we were to ask the author of Hebrews, how would you apply your teaching in Hebrews chapter 1? I think he would say, you need to pay close attention 
to what you have heard. You need to pay much closer attention. to Look at 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And, and you need to not neglect the great salvation that has come in the Lord Jesus. So there's the, there's the flow of thought. And, and my application type comments to you from that, that trip through these verses on the flow of thought level uh, is to say, we need the Bible, we need the gospel, like we need oxygen. My kids ran cross country yesterday. It was glorious to see them expend themselves on the, tr- on the, on the, the race course. And, and at the end, their, their bodies are heaving as they do everything they can to get more oxygen into their lungs. That's how we need the Bible. We need to feel our need for the Bible. The gospel is the difference between life and death, heaven and hell, judgment and salvation. We need the gospel. Okay, flow of thought. Uh, literary structure of what the author has, has done. Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. This is amazing. This guy has thought carefully to consider the problems that he's facing, the problems that he solved by what he accomplishes by means of this literary structure. He's trying to show how everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. How's he going to do that? How's he going to do that in a limited space in a way that makes the point forcibly? It's, it's remarkable what he accomplished here. Notice how in verse 5 he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And then look at verse 13, how it opens. And to which of the angels has he ever said? And those, those are parallel statements in the Greek text as well. For to which and to which. Of the angels, of the angels. Did God say, has he said? Very parallel statements. And then look at the text that he quotes. Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 are all about Jesus, well, when they're written, they're all about the future king from David's line who will be the son of God. Well, that's what Psalm 110 is about too, which is quoted in 113. These are very similar texts. And so by structuring the the whole thing with those as the boundary texts, the beginning and end texts, he starts and finishes with, with statements from the Old Testament that everyone recognizes are fulfilled in the future king from David's line, whom the Christians are saying, that's Jesus. So it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant move. He's created boundaries for, for himself. And then within those boundaries, um, maybe, maybe you've, you've looked at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, and you've thought to yourself, I'll go look at the Old Testament and see what Psalm 97, 7 is saying, or perhaps Deuteronomy 32, 43, which is a similar, uh, pa- similarly worded passage that uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is also at play here. Both of those passages are addressed not to the future king from the line of David, but to God, Yahweh. So sometimes people are puzzled by this, and they look at Hebrews 1.6, and they're like, well, this is the, the, the author's talking about Jesus, but he's chosen this text that seems to be addressed to God. And then if you look at Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, same difficulty there. Because if you go read Psalm 102, that's not a future prophecy about the Messiah from the line of David. No, it's just a a statement that celebrates God, Yahweh's work in creation. So the author, second and second to last, has, has quoted these passages that in the Old Testament are addressed to God the God the Father, we would say, Yahweh. And the author is saying, yes, but when we speak of God, we speak of the Son. 
When, when the Bible speaks, where Scripture speaks, God speaks. And what is spoken to God in the Old Testament is treated as being spoken to the Son in these two places. And this happens elsewhere uh, in the New Testament as well. You know, that, that, that great text in Romans 10 when Paul says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, that's Yahweh in the Old Testament, will be saved. In, 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 in the Old Testament, that's speaking of God. It's not a direct prophecy of the future Messiah. But that statement about God is applied to Jesus in Romans 10, 13. So this is something the New Testament authors regularly do. So first and last, we have these, these prophecies about the future Messiah. Second and second to last, verses 6 and 10 through 12, we have these statements that are, that are spoken to the Lord. And then in the middle, in verses 7 and 8 and 9, for the Greek nerds in the room, this is a mendak construction. And on the one hand, on the other hand. So he, it's like he says in verse 7, on the, on the one hand, he says of the angels, and then in verse 8, but on the other hand, he says of the Son. That's how it's put together. So, so it's clear that those two go together. And, and his point, again, is these angels are just ministers and servants. But the Son is enthroned and anointed and righteous and glad. So you know what I'm saying about this passage, don't you? I don't even have to use the word, and you know what I'm saying about this passage. Why has the author done this? Number one, this is an aid to memory for him to put it together this way. If you see this, now, I mean, maybe you've tried to memorize this passage and you've thought to yourself, it just looks like a random collection of Bible verses. Well, if you, if you understand the, the literary structure of it, then you can just sort of go up the steps on one side and down the steps on the other side as you work your way through it as you, as you memorize, and I would encourage you to memorize and meditate on this passage. Also, second, he's given himself a structure and boundaries. So by doing this, he, he has accomplished, he has made the point, everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, but he didn't have to quote every text to do it. You know, he, he gave himself this structure, he established these boundaries, and then he fills in the blanks, and his point is made. Also, he has centered uh, these, these two ideas in verses 7 and 8 and 9. Idea number one, these angels are just servants. Idea number two, the Son is God, and he's enthroned forever. And then lastly, fourth, on what he's accomplished by means of this chiastic structure in Hebrews 1, 5 through 14, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and it, and it models how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. He's thought carefully about these passages. He has understood the meaning of, of the Old Testament. He understands the challenges that his audience faces. And then he presents them with this beautifully arranged set of texts that are meant to hold them as they are convinced that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Okay, so flow of thought, literary structure, now fulfillment of the Old Testament. And here I just want to go back to this idea of this author thinking about how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. You know, other places in the New Testament, you have Paul, for instance, in Romans 15, verse 4, saying, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And you have Peter speaking in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, of how those prophets in the Old Testament who had the Spirit of Christ in them, 
indicating what person or t- they're, they're searching and inquiring to find out what person or time the Spirit of Christ in, in them is indicating when he predicts the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And then Peter says they, they realized that they were not serving themselves, but you. So both Paul and Peter are saying the Old Testament was written for the instruction of believers in Jesus because it's him and who it's fulfilled. And the author of Hebrews has said the same thing, but he said it in this artistic and beautiful way. So in verse 5, Psalm 2-7 is, is a, a statement in the Psalms about the future king from David's line. And then the second text quoted in verse 5, 2 Samuel 7, 14, this is where God reveals to David that he's going to raise up his seed after him and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that future king from David's line, God says, he will be to me a son and I will be to him a father. So the author is saying, Psalm 2-7, which was reflecting on 2 Samuel 7, 14, fulfilled in Christ. And then he has the audacity, and it's an amazing audacity. It's a, it's a risky audacity to apply these, these Old Testament Yahweh texts in verses 6 and 10 through 12 to Christ. And, and then in, in verse 7, you know, he quotes Psalm 104, speaking of, of the, the angels being flames and winds serving the Lord. Uh, verses 8 and 9 that quotation of Psalm 45 is, is remarkable because as you're reading Psalm 45, the, the psalmist moves seamlessly from addressing the king from David's line to addressing God. And, and in, the, in the psalm, it's almost jarring, and, and it, it almost feels like he's calling the king God. And if you're not informed by the New Testament, this is one of those things that you're like, who does he think this king is going to be? But then once, once Christ comes and, and it's revealed that the word has been made flesh, the word who was with God and was God, that is the one who has been made flesh. Well, now Psalm 45 makes perfect sense to us. And the author is claiming this is fulfilled in Christ. And then lastly, in verse 13, uh, the, 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 the author of Hebrews takes Psalm 110 and says... This is about Jesus. So the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. I have five points of application as we respond to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Number one, hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the gospel. Don't let any pressure or persecution or inducement to an easier life, don't let anything like that draw you away from the gospel. And I hope you feel also this, this sense of we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Uh, I was, as I was thinking about this, I thought about this novel by Wendell Berry called Jaber Crow. And this guy, Jaber Crow, he, he goes out into the, the wilderness and he lives in a cabin in Kentucky. 
And Wendell Berry has this beautiful passage as Jaber describes everything that he sees in the woods. I don't even know the names of all the bugs and the plants and the flowers and the trees and the birds and everything that he sees. And after he's gone through this litany of, of this, this glorious description, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful passage in the novel. He goes through all these things and then he says, I felt like I just wasn't paying enough attention to what was going on around me. And he's just sitting there on the porch of this cabin watching the things that are happening in the woods. Listen, creation deserves that kind of attention. How much more the gospel? We must hold fast the gospel. Secondly, let me urge you to, to look at what the author of Hebrews has done and hear him call you to consider how we may stir one another up to love and good deeds. And then, and then marvel at what he did, how effective he was at this. I mean, what an achievement to set out to, to stir your brothers and sisters up to love and good deeds, and everyone recognize this is the very word of God, and we're going to put it in the New Testament. That's what happened with this guy's word of exhortation. We can give thought to how we can stir one another up to love and good deeds. We can come up with creative and beautiful and fitting and effective ways to do this, and we should. Third, um, and this kind of goes with the previous one. We want to consider how to stir one another up. That's second. Third, we want to recognize how the author of Hebrews has served us. We want to recognize to what lengths he went to serve us. And then we want to appreciate his service by studying closely what he's given to us. Fourth, um, and this, this goes to some of the things that I was saying last week that I'm not going to take the time to develop more fully here, uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll get there. I think there are... Well, I have a list of, of um, points of contact between Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 13. So again, I think the author intends for Hebrews 13 to supply the, the steps of obedience that he wants his audience to take. Things like, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Honor marriage. Uh, let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. Uh, be free from the love of money. All those things, I think those are directly connected to what we have in Hebrews 1. So obey Hebrews 13. Fifth, and, and this is the one out of which all the others are going to flow, the one that is the, the most important. This is, this is the most important thing that I have to say, that the author of Hebrews has to say, and it's, it's how we are intended to respond to this passage, Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. Worship Jesus. He is the begotten and beloved Son. He is the angel-worshipped firstborn of the Father. He is the righteous, anointed, enthroned King. He is the immutable Creator. And He is seated at the Father's right hand. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you through our King Jesus. Empowered by the Spirit that you have given to us. And we pray that you would cause us to respond in just the ways I have enumerated. Lord, we want to be those who hold fast to the gospel, who consider how we can stir one another up, 
who appreciate how we've been served by all the biblical authors, but particularly this one. Those who are ready to obey everything given to us in Hebrews 13, those who worship Jesus. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here who don't know the Lord Jesus, from everything that I've said and from all that the author of Hebrews has written, I pray that they would want to know him. And if they, ha- if they do want to know him and they haven't taken a public step of declaring their allegiance to him, I pray that they would want to do that. I pray that you would make it like a burning in their bones, that they cannot not tell people that they love Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. Lord, would you make disciples here? people who have been taught to obey everything that he commanded for your glory. Amen.